Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. It's just me this week, and this is episode 192 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Annie Duke about how to make decisions in business and in your cases and competitive poker. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay Ruby Receptionist, new law business model in SaneBox. We wouldn't be able to do this without their support, so stay tuned, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. Now, before we get to my conversation with Annie, I want to tell you about a couple of things. First, if you are a practicing solo or small firm lawyer, join us on Facebook. You'll need to sign up for an insider account on Lawyerist.com, which is free, and then you can join our Facebook group. Just wait for the link in your email or search for Lawyerist Insiders on Facebook. There are a couple of questions because the group is only for practicing solo and small firm lawyers. We don't allow vendors or promotion in there. One of the reasons to join is for the Monday morning meeting. For a few weeks now, I've been hosting a short Facebook live video chat where I answer questions and share what's new and upcoming on Lawyerist. It's fun, and you can only tune in within the Lawyerist Insiders Facebook group. We also just started a business book club, and you're not too late to jump into this month's book, which is Annie Duke's book, Thinking in Bets. We're reading the book together, and we'll get together for a video chat to discuss the book towards the end of the month. You should join us, and if you listen to this podcast and you want to learn more about Annie, you might as well read the book with us, so join us. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Dmitry Leonov from SaneBox, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Annie. My name is Dmitry Leonov, and I head up growth at SaneBox.com. Hey, Dmitry. Thanks for being with us again today. We're going to talk about Inbox Zero, right? Yeah. Awesome. We just had Merlin Mann on the show recently to talk about this. And I don't know, can we call him the inventor of Inbox Zero? I think we can. Or at least the popularizer of it. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know that was happening. But <laughs> <laughs> I have big shoes to fill. Yeah. But tell us where to get started. Like when we are trying to implement Inbox Zero, where do we start? Well, I mean, the key idea, just to keep in mind, because it can get complicated with five things. The, the main thing is that don't leave the emails hanging in your inbox. Once you look at it, something should happen. Mm -hmm. uh, and you shouldn't look at the same email twice. I mean, that's the overarching principle. Or at least look at it once and then decide when you're going to do something with it and then look at it again when you are actually going to execute on it. So two tops. Right. But but as part of step one, if you decide right now is not the time, that's actually one of the steps in inbox zero, which is defer. Right. Let's talk about those steps then, because the whole thing is built around like, don't let your inbox take up extra space in your brain. Mm -hmm. And the steps are designed to help you around that. Maybe you could walk us through it and, and tell us how SaneBox helps. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, we built SaneBox with inbox zero principles in mind. So it's all kind of lined up nicely together. The first bucket is delete. And this is actually why we we started Sandbox is for most people, it takes a lot of brain cycles to figure out which emails are not important and what you should just delete without opening it, meaning just by looking at the subject and the sender. For a lot of emails, you can decide this, this is just noise. And so uh, with, you know, if you're not using Sandbox, <laughs> it's just important to do it in bulk. Uh, so there's, you know, Google has or Gmail has prioritization features, which don't, from what we hear, don't work as well. Yeah, but that's basically what we'll, why we built Sandbox. We can automatically move all of the unimportant stuff that you never open into a separate folder. And then you can just select all of the emails in that folder and hit delete once. I think people who don't delete emails just all over the place are missing out on the visceral pleasure of just saying, this is a thing that I don't have to think about. Yeah, no, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> And then, yeah, we also built a feature that's called same black hole, uh, where you drag an email into the black hole folder, and then all future emails from that sender will go straight to trash. So it's like unsubscribing, but just faster and easier. Like it. Okay, that's deleting. What's next? The next one is uh, delegate. And that basically just means forward. So if there's somebody on your team or, you know, and then, yeah, that doesn't come up as often. But if there's somebody else that should be dealing with the email, just hit forward. And again, the key is don't think about it longer than you have to. Mm -hmm. Next one is defer. And this is actually a big one. For most of us, if the email is not urgent, we just leave it in their inbox, in the inbox. Some people create uh, a folder called defer. I mean, and that's actually, that's Merlin Mann's best practice, create a, a defer folder and move those emails there. Problem is you still have to like manually go through that <laughs> that folder and look at when you want to, every time it kind of forces your brain to think about when is this timely. Um, so again, we built a feature for that called snooze. So you can create a folder called tomorrow, create a folder called next week, or you can customize basically any timeframes you can think of. Folders 
and it pops back into your inbox at the time you specify it. Hmm. So it's uh, cool. super useful. The fourth step is respond. So just the idea is that if a reply takes less than two minutes, just hit reply and deal with it right now. Hmm. And then last of all? The last of all is do. And uh, so the, the do bucket is stuff that takes longer than two minutes to, to work on. Uh, so I used to leave those emails in my inbox. What I've since then came up with is a better way of doing it. So if you're using a to-do list or some kind of service for your action items, it's especially easy if you're using Gmail or you know a webmail. You can just grab a link to that email paste it into your to-do application, and then just archive the email so that your inbox, the idea is to keep your inbox as light as possible. So your inbox is only meant for things that you haven't processed yet. And once you've prioritized it on your to-do list, now you've processed it. Now you're done with your email and you can go to your actual to-do items. I was telling you beforehand, before we started recording, but I sort of conflate respond and do, and I'm wondering if, am I wrong to do so? Or are those, is there a useful function in keeping those things separate? I mean, I think, I think it's useful to keep them separate because the way that kind of my my learning over the years to take those emails that are an actual project right like to take you some time to think about and, and work on uh, and moving them out of your inbox and into your actual task management system that's one of the reasons to keep it separate at least in your mind yeah <laughs> if folks are interested in learning more about sanebox about inbox zero you can visit sanebox.com lawyerist to learn more Dimitri, thanks for being with us today and talking through Inbox Zero and how to get started. Thanks for having me. I'm Annie Duke. I am probably best known for having been a professional poker player. I was a professional poker player for 18 years until 2012 when I retired. And now I am a public speaker, keynote speaker, consultant, um, coach, generally under the category of a decision strategist. So I, I work with people on better decision-making, critical thinking skills, and decision strategy. Hi, Annie. Welcome to the podcast. And uh, Annie is also the author of the book, Thinking in Bets, as well as one other book or two other books? Thinking in Bets is actually my fifth book. Oh, wow. I, well, I was way off there. No, don't worry about it. The other ones are mostly written. They're, they're very niche market um, poker strategy books. So Gotcha. Yeah, it's not like anybody would be like, oh, yeah, I remember that book unless they were specifically trying to learn poker. So we'll put a link to Thinking in Bets in the show notes for sure. But Annie, so how does one come to being a professional poker player? Well, I guess it depends on the time period. So nowadays, I suppose it would be like becoming a professional anything that you see on television. You'd go, oh, that looks really interesting on television. I really like that. Let me try that for myself. That is not the way that I became a professional poker player because at the time that I started playing, let's say I became pro in 94, you know, it wasn't all over ESPN every second of the day. When did the World Series of Poker start to become a TV thing? So they, they actually, ESPN aired the world, the main event of the World Series of Poker, I think every year, but um, nobody watched it because they didn't have the technology to be able to show somebody's whole cards mm. yet. And watching poker without being able to see anybody's whole cards at all is like super boring. <laughs> so it, it wasn't something that I certainly was aware of. It became a really big thing in terms of airing on television in 2003. So it was it was really like a decade after I started playing. So this wasn't something that I grew up watching. It wasn't something that I thought was even available as a career. So the answer for me is completely accidentally. <laughs> My brother was really, really into chess. And he was studying to become a grandmaster. And in order to do so, he had moved to New York City to actually study with a grandmaster to try to try to reach his goal. And while he was there, so that was in the 80s. And while he was there, he just started playing poker and he got really interested in poker. And so all the time that I was in college and then subsequently in graduate school, my brother was actually a professional poker player. So that was how I got introduced to it. Otherwise, I can't imagine that I would have ever ended up in that place. So it was complete luck. So it, when you when you're becoming a professional poker player at that point, is it smoky back rooms and things or is it uh, is it moving to Las Vegas or how do you do that? Well, it was a, it was a little bit of a combination of those things, um, <laughs> all of which involved a lot of smoke. Yeah. So, um, so at that time, uh, you could completely smoke at any table that you were right. playing at. So I was around <laughs> a lot of cigarettes. But um, so when I when I first started playing, I started playing in Montana. I 
at the end of graduate school, I had gotten sick. I had a stomach issue that actually landed me in the hospital for two weeks, and then I needed to recover. That's actually the main reason why I didn't end up in academics, because otherwise I would have just continued straight down that path. So when I was recuperating, I was living in Montana, where my then husband had a house. And so we just moved there so I could get better. And there were poker games in Billings, Montana, which was in a place called the Crystal Lounge in downtown Billings. It was, if you kind of imagine, like, what does a Billings bar in downtown Billings called the Crystal Lounge look like in 1992 or something, just make it like about 20% worse than what's ever in your head. I've got like Roadhouse uh, in my head. Is it, is it similar, like kind of Roadhouse? It was, um, no, like it was a small little bar, very smoky. Like there were video poker machines there. Mm -hmm. So there were a lot of people like holding, pulling handles, but it was not like, it was not any of the other things that a bar can be like a place to pick people up or a place to socialize. Mm -hmm. It was a place where people just went to drink and yeah. And then in the basement, if you went down the steps in the basement, eventually they like bought the place next door and moved the game up there. But for a few years, if, if you went down the stairs into the basement, like no windows, no ventilation system, they had two poker games down there, one that was sort of on the smaller side and one that was on the medium side. And I was playing in the medium size game and it was like all like ranchers, like retirees, you know, I mean, there weren't, I don't, I don't think I really ever saw another woman except maybe once or twice. And I was a good, probably 40 years below the average age of the person who was playing in the game. I'm going to guess, you know, and it was just, you know, it's like indoor outdoor carpet that like hadn't been cleaned and acoustic ceiling, but like in the, it was, you know, and then you'd go up and it would just be these sad people at the bar drinking. It was was quite something. Eventually I moved to Las Vegas and played in the casinos there still just as smoky, but, uh, there was more light anyway. So I'm wondering, like, what makes someone good at poker? What does it take to be to make money as opposed to just sitting there and losing it? Well, I think that there are different paths to becoming a great poker player. I think that uh, there are some people who have a, an approach which is just really good instincts to a, a particular form of the game. So I would put like Phil Helmuth, who's uh, got 15 World Series of Poker bracelets in that category. He's just a really good instinctive player. I mean, he, we he should also, probably say at this point too, you have your own world series of poker bracelets. So I do, but I'm not, I'm not as good as Phil Helmius. I mean, <laughs> okay. I mean he, it's not that he doesn't know the math. He certainly does. He does understand what the sort of, you know, the, the mechanics and the, the basics and the math of the game are, but he's, he's someone who really approaches it from this, like, I'm going to play the player, mm. right? Like I'm going to think about the player I'm against and I'm going to figure out how they're viewing me. And, and I'm going to do this kind of all on the fly. Get inside their head kind of a thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's his whole goal is like to get inside of somebody's head. And then there's other people who take a much more mathematical approach. Like if you imagine somebody coming out of MIT who was trying to become a poker player, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people like that who really understand the game theory. They understand the mathematics. They're actually uh, running simulations after they play of hands they played to try to kind of figure out what the best solution for the hand was to help their decision making going forward. So they're doing lots and lots and lots of analytics. So you can kind of think about it as like, there are the people who are like kind of the old school scouts, right? If we think about like baseball mm-hmm. and then there's the people who are taking like the real money ball approach right, right. to the game. And I think that both of them can succeed. I also think that both of them can fail for similar reasons. Like when you get too caught up in the approach that you're taking, I think that you can lose some flexibility. So I think the people who are kind of merging those two things are probably the ones who have the most endurance in general and and tend to be the most successful. And what made you a good poker player? Well, so so the interesting thing about the game is that it's like I, I don't think that I was ever really great at the game because the game is like really, really hard to solve. I think that I did a good job of a few things. I think that I was pretty good at figuring out the ways that people were viewing me that I could then use to sort of beat them at that. Right. Um, so I think that I was pretty good at that. I also think that I had, I was pretty able to not have my play, the quality of my play swing around too much, depending on whether I was winning or losing. Um, and that's actually a, a much more important skill than you might imagine. So when people are losing their play really, really, really goes downhill. So there's a lot of people who, who like on their best day are playing like incredibly brilliant poker, 
but they get so emotional at what's sort of happening at the table that all of a sudden they go from like an A game to a D game and they're spending so much time playing their D game because of their emotions that they actually don't end up winning overall, hmm. even though their fundamentals are really good. Um, and I think I was pretty good at sort of, I, I was always sort of playing my game. I, I had some variation, but I think not as much as others. Um, and then I think also one of the things that was a strength for me was I, I was pretty open-minded. I was trying to hear what other people were doing and saying and thinking and figure out how to incorporate that into my game. And, and one of the things was that I, I started teaching poker partly because I liked it and I liked teaching from when I was in graduate school, but also because it really forced me to have a clarity about my own game that I found very helpful. So I think that it was that idea of being open-minded to my own ability to be able to explain the things that I was thinking about and what I was trying to do and really saying like, if I can't explain this to the, to the seminar that I'm teaching, then I'm not allowed to just say like, this is the way you're supposed to do it. Trust me. Right. I have to go back and be look at the way that I'm thinking about it. And through that process, I think my game changed a lot, but I had to be open-minded to the, to being willing to change. And I think that that was also one of my strengths. So if, if listeners aren't already getting the idea, we're going to pivot this and talk about cognitive science and decision-making. But now that we've talked some about how you came to poker, where does that background come from? How did, how do you pivot yourself from being a professional poker player to teaching people how to make better decisions? I, I love that question because the answer is there was no pivot. <laughs> so, um, so let me explain. I think that I, there was some point at which I thought I was pivoting. And then as I got deeper into it, I realized there hadn't been a pivot. So that was an interesting journey of mine that I, I, I'd love to sort of relay. So yeah. I started off my life as an academic. I went to Columbia undergrad. And while I was at Columbia, I double majored in English and psychology. And I, I, during the whole four years I was there, I was the research assistant to somebody in the psychology department whose name was Barbara Landau. Lovely. She's now at Johns Hopkins. And so I was really, during my undergraduate years, being trained as a scientist. And she encouraged me to go on to graduate school um, and particularly encouraged me to go study with her mentors, with her her advisors, uh, Lila and Henry Gleitman. Uh, and they were at the University of Pennsylvania. So I, I, luckily I got in um, and I came to study with Lila and Henry. Um, and I was at, at Penn for five years. And I really was going to become a psychologist, an experimental psychologist, meaning not somebody who you sit on the couch and talk to, but someone who's doing ex experiments in, in my case, I was particularly looking at learning and how you learn in no noisy environments, in particular, how children learn their first language. But in doing so, obviously, I had to sort of understand all of this interaction of how do we process information? How do we think about thinking? How do we think about learning work and decision science and classical conditioning and perception, everything from like, why do we see color? You know, what, what, how do we hear sound? Why do we taste? This is all in that area of what I was studying. So right at the end, after the end of five years, I had all of these job talks lined up to go and interview to become professor. And I had really been struggling with this physical issue, really, particularly during the last year. And as I was actually going off to my first job talk at NYU, I got really sick. I, I didn't actually get to go do the talk because I was too sick and I ended up in the hospital. And I was in the hospital for two weeks and I wasn't able to keep any food down. So from there, obviously, I had to recover, which meant I had to take the year off. During that year, as I said, that's when I started playing poker. And at first I was like, and, and I really loved the game. Like the minute I sat down at the table, I was like, oh, like this is, I love this. <laughs> like I really loved what I was doing before, but this just seemed like, I mean, it sounds silly to say, but like this problem of solving this game, like trying to solve this game, which is unsolvable when like there were real stakes involved and you, you were looking around at, at, at what other people's patterns were and how they were making decisions and how they were viewing you and trying to come up with counter strategies and how do I think about how they're thinking about me or, and, and what do they think about how I'm thinking about them and how does that change things? And I just really loved it. And so, so I ended up taking time off from graduate school. That time off ended up being 18 years before <laughs> whatever, like things happen. But I thought now I'm doing something different. And then what happened was in 2002, I got asked by a group of a, a hedge fund that was doing a retreat for its options traders to come and speak to them about risk and how you might manage risk and how poker might inform thinking about risk. And not that I hadn't seen the relationship between what I was doing in graduate school and poker before, but this was the first time that it really hit me as I was trying to communicate this to a group of people, hmm. how much I hadn't pivoted at all. Because 
what I realized was the problems that I was dealing with in poker, which is this very noisy environment where you get an outcome, right? You win or lose the hand and your job as a player is to try to figure out why, why did that happen? And the issue is it's not really tightly connected. It's not like chess. If I lose a game of chess to you, I know why I didn't play as well as you did. And the reason that I know that is because in chess, you don't have a lot of luck involved and you don't have a lot of hidden information involved. I can see your whole position. And so any move that you might be able to make, I can see it. Mm-hmm. It's the set of possibilities. And you're not having like to account dice. for whole cards and things like that. No, yeah. but in poker, there's hidden information. I can't see the whole cards and I can't control the deal of the cards. Mm-hmm. And so what that means is that in poker on any given hand that I play, I, I could have the mathematically best hand. I could out decide you. I could think about the hand better than you did. And yet I could still lose because of the turn of a card. I could play a hand quite poorly um, and I could still win. So, you know, I can win because I have the best hand and I play it well. I could win because I have the worst hand and I play it poorly. I could lose because I have the best hand and I play it well and luck intervenes. I could lose because I have a bad hand and I play it poorly. And none of that is really known to me because I can't see your whole card. So I don't really get a definitive answer at the end of the hand. And I'm trying to sort of figure out from this mush of outcomes that come my way. Well, okay, so how do I take that result and try to figure out like, what can I learn from this? What was due to luck? What was due to skill? What was a reasonable thing for me to think about your hand, even if it turned out that you had a different hand? All of these kinds of questions, it's really hard. So it's a very noisy environment where outcomes and decisions aren't very tightly linked. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that I was studying in uh, when I was in graduate school was how do you learn under these circumstances in real life when you're dealing with correlations that aren't perfect so that it's very hard to work backwards from the things that are happening in your life. So when I gave that talk, I said, oh, wait a minute. I didn't actually exit out of what I was doing before at all. I just sort of landed in a different laboratory to study it. And this laboratory is actually really, really rich in understanding under real circumstances where there are real stakes involved, where people really have skin in this game. Where does decision-making go wrong? Where does it go right? What are the things that go wrong? What are what are the ways in which the elite players in the world actually figure out ways to solve for kind of the deficits in the way that our brains naturally process information that can lead us astray? And that was like a really exciting moment for me in 2002. And from that point on, I started really developing this convergence of the two things that that really ended up actually, you know, as this book that I wrote. Mm-hmm. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to talk more about that. And maybe we'll cover some of the top three or four decision-making traps that people fall into. So we'll be right back. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, dedicated to helping you grow your practice one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's live virtual receptionists work in tandem with their innovative technology to answer your calls live with your custom greeting, transfer calls through to you when and where you want, collect new client intake and messages, make follow-up calls, and more. Delighting your callers in English and Spanish just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. They integrate with Clio, Rocket Matter, and Lexicata, as well as the contacts and calendar on your cell phone to easily integrate into your workflow. Ruby can host your local phone number or provide you with one, giving you the opportunity to make dual use of your phone. Call clients using your office or personal number as you please via the Ruby mobile app. For over 15 years, thousands of attorneys have been turning rings into relationships with Ruby receptionists. To learn more, call 844-715-7829 or visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018. If you're not 100% happy with your law practice right now, chances are you want more. More income from your practice, more fulfillment from your work, and more freedom to enjoy your life. There is a new law business model that is allowing passionate attorneys to reclaim their lives and love practicing law again. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers for over a decade on the new law business model she created to build her own million-dollar law practice. And now, the lawyers she has trained in that new law business model have their own high six- and seven-figure law practices, all without sacrificing time with their families and only working with clients they love to serve. It is possible to experience the exhilaration of a thriving law practice, do the most meaningful legal work, have a real impact in your clients' lives, and have complete control over your schedule. Discover this new law business model now by watching the free video workshop series at newlawbusinessmodel.com lawyerist. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those who use traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, 
You can easily accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 48 state bars. LawPay. Okay, we're back. So, Annie, it sounds like when people describe, say, Jeff Bezos, the CEO of Amazon, as playing chess while everyone else is playing checkers, you would say that he's playing something more like poker. Yes, I, because... I would say that he definitely, you know, actually, Jeff Bezos is attributed with saying, I, I mean, I assume he actually said it, that his goal is to get to 70% on a decision and then he'll make it because speed is important. Mm -hmm. And that's actually not a chess way of thinking. That's a poker way of thinking. Yeah. So Mm. I'm pretty sure that he is. So yeah, when people say, Oh, he's playing three dimensional chess, I'm like, you know, no, he really, what they're saying is that he's playing poker and he's playing it really well. I mean, Jeff Bezos really understands uncertainty and that you can't control the outcomes that you have. What you can do is really think about what are the set of the ways that things can possibly go, try to get some idea of what the probabilities of those things are, and then make sure that you're prepared for each of those outcomes so that you're nimble. And I would say that that describes what Jeff Bezos have done pretty, yeah. pretty well. So help us figure out like when, when we're approaching a problem, whether it's you know a, a negotiation in a case, or, or let's say it's valuing a case or valuing a business decision that we might want to make, what are some of the traps that people fall into when they're making those decisions? So, yeah, so one of the first, one of the biggest traps that people have to watch out for is something called motivated reasoning. So this is when we're trying to reason through a problem, but what we're really doing is is trying to reason to a conclusion that we'd like to get to. Mm-hmm. So uh, as an example, if we're thinking about what the right trial strategy is, and we have an opinion about it, we'll tend to take the information that's available to us and use it to argue toward the opinion that we already have to support the opinion that we already have, as opposed to, to actually be open-minded to other points of view and other strategies. Is that really related to things like confirmation bias, where I took the case, I'm investing in the case, so I'm going to make it valuable? or Because um, it feels like that's kind of the same sort of a thing where uh, I'm going to be, or I've, I've committed to this thing, I've invested money in it, and so it better be valuable, so I'm going to come up with a reasoning of why it's going to be. Yeah, so the answer is yes, and confirmation bias is a necessary component of motivated reasoning. So the basically the two things that are going on in motivated reasoning is confirmation Information bias, which is noticing stuff that agrees with me, and I tend to ignore things that don't agree with me. So mm-hmm. I'm not really taking all the facts at hand equally, right? I'm, I'm sort of paying attention to the things that argue my side or support what I'm thinking about, and I, I ignore the other stuff. So that's confirmation bias. We notice information that agrees with us more. Um, and then the other piece that, that goes into motivated reasoning is that when you are presented with information that disagrees with you, that might um, offer a counter argument or suggest that you should recalibrate, you work very, very hard to discredit it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll give you an example just from politics. And, and I know that I do this, and I'm guessing that this is going to ring true for you as well, because it tends to be a human thing. If I see a political article, a, an opinion piece, for example, and you know I read the headline and the headline generally agrees with a point of view that I already have in politics, I, I'll do like a loose read of the article and then declare myself smart. Right. <laughs> but when I see something that disagrees with me, either I'll, I like won't have the time to read it. So that would be sort of on the confirmation bias thing. Like I won't even bother to look at it. Or if I do actually take the time to read it, I am like Columbo, mm-hmm. like with a magnifying glass, trying to search out everything that's wrong with that argument. Why, why the person is biased, why they're not looking at all the data, you know, how they're spinning it to their side, what they're missing, you know, so on and so forth. And so that you, you need both of those things going on to get to motivated reasoning, both the confirmation bias piece, but then also this piece of really working to discredit the stuff that doesn't agree with you so that you can reject it. So what's the way around this? This is a very strong tendency that we have. So the first thing that I would say is one of the best ways to deal with any of this stuff is to try to approach the world where the way that you approach your own beliefs is that they're in progress under construction, right? That your beliefs are a work in progress that are always evolving. And in the moment, I think if we take any slice of time, we view our beliefs as very crystallized. But yet, like if I ask anybody, hey, can you think of some things that you believed like really, really strongly when you were 20 that you now realize were like, what was I thinking? 
And everybody's like, yeah, like everything I believed when I was 20. And the fact is that it's not something particular about being 20 that makes it so that your your beliefs all of a sudden really change. That, that's true at any moment in our life that, that our beliefs are never 100% true or false. They're usually somewhere in between because we just don't have access to all the information and all the points of view that we need in order to really have that belief be perfectly formed. Um, and you can see this like just in general in terms of like humankind as well. Like it was a consensus opinion for a long time that the earth was flat or that the sun revolved around the earth and not the other way around, for example. And those are things that have changed because there were scientists who were sort of poking at that and, and challenging those views. And you should, you should think about your own beliefs that way too. So that's step number one is to really view your beliefs as much more um, kind of loosely held, right? Mm -hmm. So, so that you're more open-minded to information that's coming in. And that doesn't mean that you can't decide with conviction. You can still decide with conviction because in that moment, that's the best information that you have. And that's what Jeff Bezos is saying when he says he wants to be 70%, right? Like given the information I have, this is the best information I have. I'm making this decision with conviction, but I'm also going to keep these these beliefs relatively loosely held so that I can be more open to other information. So that's piece number one. And part of what that means is that you want to approach the world not asking, why am I right? Because you kind of already know why you're right. We have a tendency to reason toward why we're right. <laughs> but to ask instead, why am I wrong? To always say, why am I wrong? And to challenge yourself to think that way. That's one of the reasons why the book is titled Thinking in Bet. Because if you declare something to be true, like, for example, if you say, the Democrats are going to take the House in November. And I say to you, well, do you want to bet on that? What happens is that you generally say, well, I didn't say for sure. Right. It, it forces you to reassess how, how certain are you? Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it just brings up the uncertainty. So that's number one is to try to sort of do that for yourself. But the thing is that we fall prey to this stuff all the time. And actually, in some ways, the smarter we are, the worse it is. Because when we, when we you know, start to be aware of things like confirmation bias, we'll say, oh, and, but I'm sure I know this isn't confirmation bias. I'm aware of it. And then that sort of gets put to the side. So one thing that one of the best things you can do to improve your decision is get some other people together to work on a team with you or in just like a decision-making pod or something like that, where when people get together in groups, the default in terms of sort of the contract that's between them is that we're going to affirm each other. That's the default. That's how you get echo chambers. Mm -hmm. But it's really good when you, when you already understand what the problem is for me to get together with you and say, Hey, do you mind? Like what I'd like to do is work decisions with you. And what I'm really looking for is for you to challenge me, for you to point out when you see that I'm being biased for you to tell me when you have a different perspective on it or a different point of view or where I can find information that might be super helpful to me. And the information that's going to be the most helpful to me is information that disagrees with me because I'm very good at finding information that agrees with me. What I need help on is the hypotheses I haven't thought of, the perspectives that I haven't seen for myself simply because I haven't seen them and I'm not seeking them out. So that you're, you're basically changing what becomes harm Mm -hmm. in the social interaction. So normally if I'm just having chit chat with someone at like a cocktail party and I express an opinion and they're like, you know, that's wrong. That's sort of viewed as harm. Like you've done harm to right. me by saying that I'm wrong. Um, and in a cocktail party setting, that's probably reasonable. But if we've made this agreement now, if you believe that I'm being biased, do you believe that there's some other way to think about the problem that I haven't thought about? And you don't tell me that's now doing me harm. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I've recently read some uh, evidence that strongly suggests that diverse teams get an advantage here too, because something about the diverse makeup of the team forces people to check their assumptions. Right. And uh, and I, it sounds like uh, when you're assembling your team, doing it with an eye towards diversity may give you a, an edge when it comes to this. Right. Because that, that kind of, so different people have interacted with the world differently in their lives and the yep. world has interacted with them differently in their lives. And they offer perspectives that you can't yourself have. So when you're trying to work through a decision, the most important thing is to really look at it from every possible angle so that you're challenging your assumptions, you're challenging your biases. You're always asking, is there a better way? Is there something I'm missing? Why am I wrong? Tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me what I'm missing. And the problem is, is that if you've got a bunch of people who all think exactly the same way, there's not going to be quite as much power in the group because you're just going to be working with sort of clones of yourself. Right. So you're going to be losing out on that opportunity to be able to get those diverse viewpoints that can actually challenge this, your, your own status quo. So like, I like to refer back to John Stuart Mill on this one, 
because, you know, what his point of view was, was that even if you're sure that something is true, it's still very important for you to engage with people who really believe that it's not Mm -hmm. because otherwise it just becomes the way that we do things. Well, this is the way it's always been. This is the way we do things. And the truth in that way, as he says, becomes stale Hmm. because you don't really know your side of an argument if you don't know, if you can't be challenged by the other side of the argument. And look at how important what he said is, because it took somebody challenging that the earth is flat for us to figure out that it's round. So even though people at that time were completely positive, they were 100% sure that the earth was flat. Someone had to come along and say, no, I'm going to challenge that. And when that got held up to scrutiny, it didn't hold up very well. And that's what you always want to do is take your own status quo ideas, the way that you always do things, the way you think, what you think is right, and hold them up to those challenges. And in order to do that, you need people with truly, you know, authentically different viewpoints as you in order to do that in in a really robust way. I've also heard uh, and read that another way to sort of to make this happen is to bring somebody who is ignorant into the group after Mm -hmm. it has started. Um, So they have, they they are going to ask the dumb questions that you are then forced to explain. And in explaining it, you sort of, I I think you sort of check your assumptions. So if somebody walks in and nobody has told them that the earth is flat, they may wonder why you're thinking that. Um, Right. And why, why, why isn't it round? And then you have to justify it. Exactly. So that goes back to something that Richard Feynman said, the great Mm -hmm. physicist, which is that you don't really, you don't really know anything until you can explain it to an eight-year-old. Exactly. Yeah. And so what happens when you bring in somebody who's ignorant? Maybe, maybe an eight-year-old. <laughs> right, maybe an eight-year-old. Is, first of all, you, ha- you have to explain it at its most basic level. They're going to ask you those really basic questions that are going to challenge you. But here, I think, is the really important piece of it, is that in order to actually explain it to them, you have to de-jargonize. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that I think that particularly intelligent people who are verbally adept get away with arguing to their conclusion is with jargon because jargon makes us all sound smart. Someone's listening to somebody with a lot of jargon and they're just like, Oh, they must know what they mean because that's really slick. Right. 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 So when you, when you have to explain it to an eight year old or someone you've brought in the room who has no idea what's going on, you have to lose the jargon and that forces you to actually examine what you know without relying on these, you know, just vocabulary words that sort of can lose their meaning and make it so that the argument really loses its robustness. So we kind of jumped ahead by talking about some of your solutions to many of the traps, but maybe you could identify a few of the other decision-making traps for us. Yeah, sure. So so motivated reasoning is definitely like number one. Yeah. Number two, uh, big, biggest trap for me would be resulting. So here, here's what resulting is. It's that basically that problem that we talked about in the beginning, the difference between poker and chess. So remember in chess, I said, if I lose a game to you, um, we know why I just, I didn't play as well as you did. Mm -hmm. So in that particular case, we can look at the quality of the outcome in this case for me, poor, for you good. Um, and I can derive something about the quality of my decision-making, um, and be pretty good at it. So there's a really, really tight connection in chess between the quality of an outcome and the quality of decision. That connection does not exist in poker. The quality of the outcome does not tell you very much about the quality of decision, at least certainly not on a given try. And that's true of most things in life, right? So we can think about like super simple, right? If I drive through an intersection and I get through safely, you don't actually know from that whether I made good decisions, whether I followed the rules of the road or not. Yeah. Because there's just luck involved, right? Like I could have gone through a red light and, you know, nobody hit me. You know, I could have gone through a green light and also gotten through safely. Likewise, if I get in an accident, it's not clear whether it was my fault or not. You need to do more investigation in order to get there. This one really resonates for me because precedent is such an important part of the way lawyers just view the world. And, and it tends to seep into the way lawyers make decisions about their businesses and about valuing and about, you know, the way they do things. And it feels to me like, you know, reasoning backwards from the result is, it's kind of, you know, anecdotes versus actual data um, again. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's not about, did you make the right call? It's, well, it turned out good every time, so I must have done it right. And, and that, is, that isn't necessarily true, right? I, I think that's what you're saying. Yeah, not at all. I th- you know, what I like to say is we should, we should spend less time patting ourselves on the back for the good stuff that happens, and, but also less time with self-recrimination for the bad stuff that happens. Mm-hmm. So like, I actually, like, I've been thinking about this 
a lot recently, actually, about the way that we treat the good and bad results. And, and when do we actually go in and dig in and try to figure out, like, oh, was there something wrong with our decision? And what we tend to do if we're really trying to learn is the tendency is when we have some kind of unexpectedly bad outcome, everybody's going in and doing the postmortem. Right. Like we're going to go in and we're going to try to figure it out. And, um, you know, people are trying to figure out who to blame, which is kind of a silly thing to do anyway. <laughs> right. And, you know, but that's what's causing them to dig into the process. And then when they're digging in, they're only ever asking one question, which is how could this not have happened? Right. How could we not have lost in this way? And there's two problems with that. One is that you miss the opportunity to just become a better predictor of what an outcome is going to look like by not looking at unexpected wins also. So what happens when you have an unexpected win? You just pat yourself on the back and walk on, right? You don't look in and say, was there, was I actually off in my forecast? Like, was that actually an easier win than, than I was predicting? Because that's really important for being able to refine your strategy going forward, right? Like you could think about it in real estate. If I am investing in a house and an appraisal comes in much lower than I expect, that's a problem. I should go in and, and try to figure that out and figure out, you know, was that just in the set and it was just part of the variation or did I miss something in my model of the way that I'm modeling mm -hmm. um, the value of the house? But also if it comes in unexpectedly high, I should do the exact same process. Because if I'm missing the fact that that actually has a higher valuation than my model predicted, I'm going to miss some really good investments. I'm going to pass on houses that I shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. This makes me think of uh, the the data that suggests that like in football, you should always go for it on fourth down because in, you will win more games. You will get more first downs if you always go for it on fourth down. And of course, every coach knows that that's the wrong decision because they will get fired if they fail. That's right. And, exactly. But it is it is the correct decision that nobody makes because they're so focused on the results and the responsibility or the punishment for the result. Right, because nobody's getting like nobody's paying any attention on the on the unexpected win side. They're just looking at the downside. So everybody's everybody's afraid of the downside. When you go in and you do any kind of postmortem or deconstruction of the decision process, it's generally triggered by some kind of downside result, even though an unexpected upside result should be just as problematic for your decision making going forward because it means that you got the, you know, it, it doesn't always mean, sometimes it's just in the distribution, but it can mean there's something wrong with your decision process that you didn't expect it, right? And then the, here's the other thing that's wrong with it is that it's unidirectional the way that you think about it. So when you have a loss, you're thinking about how could I have done better? But the fact is sometimes you should have done worse. Sometimes I win and I should have actually lost. Here's mm -hmm. a simple example. If I run a red light and I get through that light okay, I should have actually done worse than I did, right? Mm -hmm. So so it's not like, oh, look at me. I'm so great at going through red light. It's, oh, gosh, <laughs> I should have actually done worse. So that should change my behavior. So you can think about this, for example, like in investing, right? Like sometimes you win really big and it's unexpected. And then when you look at it and you go back and look at the decision process, you realize that you actually had way too big amount of money invested in that, whatever that instrument is or whatever that position was. And it turned out that you should have actually lost less because you should have never had that much money in that investment in the first place. You should have never bet that much in that investment. So, so you can have situations like that as well. Like you could have a situation if you're a trial lawyer where you end up really winning really big at trial, but there's there's information that reveals itself during trial that makes it you realize that it was actually much dicier than you thought. And the settlement offer that you received earlier would have been better to take. Right. Likewise, you might take a settlement offer where because you're just trying to lock the win in where after really looking at it and digging down into the decision process, it actually turns out that you should have taken the chance and gone to trial because you would have you know won a lot more. So it can work in both directions. But if you're not willing to look at both directions, you're going to miss a whole lot. So we've talked about motivated reasoning and resulting. Maybe you can give us one more trap and then we'll make everybody go read the book to get the rest of them. <laughs> yeah. So the last trap that I'll talk about is that we tend to really discount our future self in favor of what's happening in the moment. So what happens is that we, we tend to get sort of dragged down into the gravity well of what's happening right now. And it's very hard for us to see out of that into kind of like, how is this really going to look in terms of the, how is this going to affect some future version of myself? How is some future version of myself going to feel about this? So we, we end up making a lot of decisions in order to sort of make ourselves feel better in the moment mm. without thinking about how that might affect us in the future. So we can think about that, for example, actually, in terms of 
the normal social interaction that we have. Like if I asked somebody in the abstract, if you were talking to somebody and you knew for a fact that they had some really crucial piece of information that would make it so that some idea that you had was absurd, would you want them to tell you that? And I think that most people would say, yeah, of course. Like if I'm, I, not, if I'm I, not sure about that. Have you heard about this study where they, they gave a whole bunch of people STD tests and then asked them if they wanted to know, to know the results and like 80% of the people said no, they didn't want to know? Well, yes, that, that's true. <laughs> that's true. But thinking people, yes. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I think most people would like, most people in the abstract, yes. in the abstract would like to know. So they haven't, so I, Actually, I think that if you said to them, like, I'm going to give you a test, would you like to know the results? I think most of them probably would have said yes in advance. Mm -hmm. But once they've actually taken the test, they don't want to know. So that's actually a pretty good example of this. So it's like, yeah, if I'm wrong about something, if I believe the earth is flat and you happen to know it's round, I probably would like you to tell me. But when it gets down into the moment of it, it feels so bad. You know, you feel attacked. You you become defensive. You don't feel good that you can't even hear it. So even though we kind of know like, hey, future Annie would really like to have that correction in the moment, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear it. So this is actually a really big problem. It's, it's called delay discounting or temporal discounting. I think that people might be familiar with it from like these studies where they say to people, do you want $100 today or $120 right. in a year? And people are like, no, I want $100 today. And this works not just in terms of like monetary exchanges, but also in terms of our own learning. We'll give up a lot of learning opportunities in the moment just to not feel like we were wrong. Hmm. Um, And it actually makes it so that we're not not able to learn from the things that are happening to us very well. So, you know, I think that that's one of the the biggest problems. So do we kind of imagine ourselves, our future selves, and, and try to approach the negotiation or the decision from the future self instead of our present self? Yeah. So there, there's basically two ways you can do it. Um, in the moment of the decision, it's really good to imagine how you'll feel about it in a year or imagine if it had happened a year ago, how you would feel about it. It's a way to get sort of some mental time and space away from it. So like one of the examples that I give in the book is if you're on the side of a road and you don't have cell service and and it's freezing cold and raining and you get a flat tire and you don't have a jack, you feel like it's literally like the worst thing that's ever happened to you in your life. And uh, I can't believe I'm so unlucky. And this is just, just the most horrible thing that's ever happened to a human being. And it doesn't really so much matter if you got the biggest promotion of your life three days before in terms of the way that you feel when you're on the side of the road, because we're, we're not really taking an average, right? We're just feeling the moment. But if I could get to you in that moment and say, well, in a year, do you think that this incident will have affected your happiness at all? You know, I mean, most yes, if you can say, laugh about it. Yes, exactly. That's what I, I always say. So most people say no. And I always argue, no, it gives you a good cocktail party conversation. Right. So I actually think it improves your life. And, and, and so here's an incident that if you, if I can get you to think about it in a year, you'll probably think that maybe it's neutral or it improves your life. But in the moment you think no worse thing has ever happened to a human being. So the more that you can sort of like imagine, how am I going to feel about this decision in a year? You know, am I going to be happy or sad in a year? Is it, what kind of effect is going to help you to get to a better place in terms of the decision making? And then you can actually turn that on its head and say, the more that you're able to kind of anticipate bad outcomes, the better strategically you'll be. And the more you'll actually then be able to deal with the bad outcomes when they happen, because you're already going to have sort of metabolized them and thought about them. So prospectively in a decision, it's really good, first of all, to sort of really entrench in your process that there's always more futures that can occur than the one that will occur. And the more that you're willing to explore all the different scenarios, all the different outcomes that could happen and start to take a stab at what the probabilities of those things happening are, the better off you'll be. Because first of all, just thinking about the probabilities of them, even though you're obviously never going to be exact, causes you to be information hungry. It causes you to go seek out those other perspectives and to start asking, like, how can I get better at figuring out these probabilities? And then it starts to think, well, then, okay, if I know all these things can happen, what can I do in order to increase the chances that the good stuff happens and decrease the chances that the bad stuff happens? And if the bad thing happens, now I can think in advance about what my reaction is going to be so that you're less emotional in the moment because you've already got a plan in place, you've already thought it through. That's the first thing is to sort of think about, like, what's just over the horizon in terms of the outcome. And then The second thing you can do is actually to do that thing of sort of working backwards and say, okay, like, you know, it's the end of the negotiation and things have gone really well. What had to have happened for that to 
to to have occurred. And then it's the end of the negotiation and things went about as badly as possible. What likely happened in order for that to have occurred? And that allows you to kind of uncover like, what are the things that you likely did? What are the things where luck intervened? How can I kind of support the kinds of behaviors that will prevent the bad outcomes and, and uh, create the good outcomes? And then this ends up acting as really a prophylactic for resulting. You're just much less likely than when a result occurs to just say, you know, oh, well, that, that, that must mean the decision was bad. And instead, when a result happens, you'll say, well, this was in the set of things that I possibly anticipated, and it was one of many possible outcomes. And you're much more likely to be able to sort of have more of that kind of reaction. It sounds a little bit like cognitive behavioral therapy, but for decision making. Um. Yeah, <laughs> I like the way that you put that. Um, it does a little bit. I, I, I hadn't really thought about it that way, but yes, I agree. So essentially, everyone should stop focusing on outcomes and start focusing on decisions and then be happy with your decisions if you've made the best decision you can and then not worry about outcomes. Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I would say is that I, I don't I don't think that we're supposed to totally ignore outcomes in two ways. One is that certainly over the long run, outcomes do tell you something. If I flip a coin once, it doesn't tell me very much about the coin. But I've, if I flipped it 10,000 times, it, it tells me something about the coin. So number one, like if you do have enough data, you can start to learn something from that, that, that's number one. But also number two is I, I do think it's very important to have triggers for going in and looking at decision process, because otherwise I think that you can fall into the trap of, uh, we're totally outcome neutral. And so this is the way that we do things. And I think that then you lose some of the opportunities to challenge your decision process. And I think that you want to always be sort of poking around and challenging your decision process. So it doesn't just become sort of the status quo. Like this is, this is the way we do things. Don't question it. But I think that what's important is that the outcomes that trigger looking in the decision process aren't just bad outcomes that are unexpected. Because when that happens, then it all becomes about the bad outcomes. I think it's important that there's that you have sort of the full range. You know, when you have really unexpectedly good outcomes, that that makes you go in and look at your process as well so that you get, get kind of neutral in terms of outcome quality. And it's more about fo your forecasting being off which is actually much more related to the decision process than the quality of a single outcome. So if listeners want to hear more about how to make good decisions and how to think about risk and the future and uh, and all of these issues, check out Annie's book, Thinking in Bets. The link is in the show notes. Annie, we actually gave out copies of Thinking in Bets at our last conference. Oh, thank um, you. It, it's, uh, and we've gotten good feedback on it. So thanks for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh,